Welcome to Season 2 of Visiting's Radio Show, where we talk to artists who are engaged with the public outside the traditional exhibition space. I'm Alan Nakagawa. This is a special one-hour edition of Visiting's Radio Show. Um, not too long ago, I was at the California African American Museum where in, uh, here in Los Angeles, and Vita Brown, who is on staff at the museum, pulled me aside to introduce me to Charles Harrison. During my short conversation with him, I came to realize that he was the designer of many objects I, and very likely you, grew up with. Charles, or Chuck, as he's affectionately known as, is one of the most influential industrial designers to come out of the United States. As this show is about artists who work outside the museum and gallery with an emphasis in public engagement, I wanted to expand that notion and insert Chuck's art, which has penetrated Americana and enhanced our everyday. His friend and fellow designer, Jeffrey Trimmings, joined us for a sit-down talk in my living room. What was going to be a half hour of Chuck's time turned into a two-hour oral history session. I felt what Chuck shared was important enough to extend our normal time of half hour to one hour so that we could all enjoy his insight, history, philosophy, and humor. Okay, I'll do my best to give you a that part of it. I was born in Shreveport, Louisiana. To the parents, my parents, my father, that is, was a professor, was a teacher at a college uh, in Louisiana. And my mother's home was Shreveport. And that's where her parents lived. They were grandma, grandpa. So when it was time for me to be born, she went home to Mama in Shreveport, and I was born there in their home. Uh, And we stayed there until it appeared that it was safe for me to travel. And then my mother carried me to... Southern University, which is a HSBC, historically black college, it is still there thriving. It is near Baton Rouge. I actually started school there. They had a school on that campus for training teachers to teach, and it was near the house that we lived in. And I would frequently go across the street to the school to play with the other children at recess. So my mother decided, well, it's time, maybe if I can go over there and play it, most of the day, maybe I could also attend school there. So she entered me in uh, school at the age of four years old, which gave me a very early start in school. 
Hmm. I think today children do not start school until much, maybe six years, something like that. All right, my family lived at this school in Texas at Prairie View A&M University. It seemed like a long time. I don't really remember how many years it was. But I think it was 1936 when we moved there. Wow. In 1940, 41, my father found employment at another place, which was in Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. And he was a teacher at a, at a high school in Phoenix called George Washington Carver High School, which is a name that we all recognize, especially associated with all the things that he developed from the peanut. And I'm especially happy to have known about him because I'm a big peanut butter guy. <laughs> peanut butter jelly sandwiches would carry me a long way. What did your father teach? Industrial arts. Oh. Primarily, he was a shop teacher. And he taught people how to make things with uh, power tools and hand tools also. He made most of our possessions. He made most of the furniture that we had in our home. He also made most of the toys for my brother and I. I have a, I had an older brother who was no longer with us. But my father made the made many of the toys that we had. Are there any toys that you were especially fond of that he made? Yes, I he made hobby horses oh, nice. and toy chests. And I remember he also made basketball hoops and backboards so that we could play. And he erected them in the yard. I went to California also after graduation from high school. Mm -hmm. Except I went to what they call here Northern California. Most people would recognize the word economics, even if they had no idea of what business administration was, which I did not either. It was, it was all right. <laughs> so anyway, I attended this school unsuccessfully. And after a short time, I was I found myself on academic probation because I was deficient in grade points in a grade point average. And after speaking with my brother, he advised me to look at, at some other occupation or some other 
major. He looked at the bulletin from the school, which listed all the courses that they offered. And he was, my brother was a psychologist, and he was sort of aware of a lot of things that not only did I not, many people did not recognize. So he saw a course in this bulletin that was essentially vocational guidance. Advised, he advised me to interrupt, enroll in that class the following semester, and I did. And upon completion of that course, the professor looked at my grades and scoring and said, Harrison, from your test scores, and look, it appears that you might do well in the field of art. So kind of as a desperate move to keep from going down the third time or drowning. I, I registered as an art major the, the following semester. And that led me to design. So uh, after you graduated from that, from uh, San Francisco City College, College, you came down to Los Angeles? No, I did not. Oh. In fact, this same instructor advised me to leave the West Coast. He says, if you want, oh. if you want to be a, become an industrial designer, he says, you probably should leave the West Coast and go to the Midwest or the East Coast to study, he said, because... We don't have in schools out here that they have a strong curriculum for industrial designers. It says not yet. Today they have some, but not in the day that you realize that I'm I'm not a young man, so it was when I was young. Industrial design as a profession was in its infancy, and so were the schools. There were not many schools. There were only five schools in the, in the United States that had curriculums for industrial design. And three of them were in Chicago and two on the East Coast. Yeah, well, I went to Chicago and set up camp there, and uh, I lived there for, I survived, I should say, uh, for four years of uh, school at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which was a fairly prestigious school for art and design. As I said earlier, industrial design was in its infancy in those areas. And this was one of the first schools to develop a serious curriculum for students. I think Illinois was one of the leading states to teach uh, industrial design. There were three schools there. There was uh, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. There was the University of Illinois, 
at Urbana Champagne. And then there was the uh, called ID Institute of Design, which was a school that had relocated from Germany doing the, the Hitler's regime. Oh. Hitler was, they, these people were trying to get out of the reach of Hitler, so they moved the school from Germany to Chicago. Was it related to the Bauhaus? It was the Bauhaus school. Yeah, it was the Bauhaus. That's where they were trying to get out. Yeah. Out of the way, and they brought it to, they brought it to Chicago. Wow. All of those guys, Moholinaj, Kandinsky, and probably a few others that I can't think of the name right now. Mies van der Rohe is the name that I'm trying to think of. He's oh, a famous architect sure. from Germany. Who were some of your mentors at the university? At the School of the Art Institute, my mentors were, one was Henry P. Glass. Oh. He was Austrian. The other was Joe. Joseph Palmer, Palmer, and they were both practicing industrial designers, who also taught class at the Art Institute School of the Art Institute. I was very fortunate, and I made friends. Became a friend of Henry Henry Glass. Wow. Hmm. And remained friendly with him for probably forty, fifty years. Until his until his passing. There was a period in New York called where they had something called the Harlem Renaissance, which produced, in my opinion, some very super artists for as writers, as musicians, as dancers. Poets. Poets, a lot of things. Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes came out of uh, out of that Harlem Renaissance period. Duke Ellington came out of that ah. period. Harlem's changed quite a bit since then. I have to agree with you. Yeah. Um, after Chicago, where did you go? What did you do? I drafted into the military. Oh. And I served in the military in the Army Corps of Engineers for two years during Korean conflict. And fortunately, I was not sent to Korea, but I was sent to Germany to be part of the occupation of Germany, where I spent two years, which I think was very strong, was a strong contribution to my development. Mm -hmm. 
was your focus in grad school? You know how you have to kind of have a... Yeah. Well, let me tell you for a little bit. At first, it was architecture and industrial design. Okay. And then I... Uh, hit some bumps someplace along the way that discouraged that pursuit. And I decided to change schools. Oh. And I had always thought that maybe I made a mistake and entered the wrong school for undergraduate study. And I... Uh, Really? Uh, somebody said go to the institute in Chicago, and I thought they meant the art institute school, and they actually meant the institute of design. And after getting to Chicago, I learned that the institute of design was the most prestigious school for oh. industrial design available. And then I thought maybe I'd made a mistake, so. I had a, I was I was attending night school most of the time, and I transferred to the old Bauhaus school and to the Institute of Design, where I stayed until I graduated with a master's degree in art education. Is actually what I got. The, the, the certificate said. Art education? Was that a switch? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, you, so you switch universities and you switch... Switch majors. Majors, wow. What made you switch to art education? It's a good question. I can't even answer that today. Hmm. Unless the program was already filled with students for industrial design. Oh. Or I needed to go to night school and they did not offer a program at night school for industrial design. Were you working by this time? No, by this time I was, I was maybe working part-time, yes. I wonder if that had something to do with it. Maybe. Probably did. That's right, I had to get a job. My money ran out. Hmm. So I, had, I found part-time jobs. But art education is such a completely different. Um, sounds like it does. Yeah, it sounds like it. Is it? Is am I wrong to say that? Yeah, as a major, they're different. They now that I have been through that road, down that road, I think there's a much there. There are a lot of similarities. But you, but you came, but you became an industrial designer anyway. Because my undergraduate degree was industrial design, right? And my portfolio, and when I went to look for jobs, 
my first job was industrial design. Mm -hmm. my, my limited understanding of art education would tell me that it gave you, since you already have had an industrial design background and interest, mm -hmm. going into art, art education would have given you a leg up against some of your competition in industrial design in terms of communication, um, curriculum. Curriculum to me is always uh, like business plan or game plan or, you know, how to get everybody on the same page. And um, they don't really teach you that in industrial design. It's a, it's a fairly singular. Um, I agree. Right. So um, you are, a, by the time you get your master's, you're a team player rather than a solo artist. Well, I thought that I... That's interesting. That I had better get a degree in something well, <laughs> because I did not want the military coming after me again <laughs> because I didn't stay in school. After I got out of the military under the agreement that I would pursue right. a graduate degree, and I had to do that. But do you think it gave you tools that gave you an edge in the field? I think so, yeah. some, to some degree. We should. Well, I was going to ask you, if, what influence do you think um, going through the art education degree, completing that program, had on your really young leadership of the design studios you were, you were hired by, and maybe even as you went into the Sears experience, uh, how mm. that might have influenced your success in those environments? Well, I... You know, that's a good question, which I would answer this way. is it, I think it helped me see and understand the skill level of other people. Oh, interesting. That's awesome. <laughs> interesting. Because I would frequently be the uh, straw boss or the lead designer in some projects, and I could assess the level of skill and knowledge of people that I had that I was required to lead in those situations. I met him shortly before I graduated from college and literally two days before I graduated from college. Mm. And we began talking about six months later, I think, mm -hmm. um, about the fact that what I, I was at the wrong university, studying the wrong thing. Oh. And I had been, I should I graduated with a degree in, in math. <laughs> um, but it was through conversations with him that I decided to go back to get a master's in industrial design. But I think 
as much as his as Chuck's success is celebrated for being a great designer, that there are lots of people like me who experienced him as a design educator would point to that as being even more important. And I don't think we really talk about that. Not often. That's, um, but you know that. I've, I know that all along the trail, the path of my... design life I have been conscious of the strengths and weaknesses of other particularly young designers mm. not only as students but also as professionals those who, who come into office See, after college, a lot of these students would come in to the offices, some of the offices that I've worked in, to find careers for life and earn and have incomes to support themselves and frequently a wife and children. So I have, along the path, created a, an empathy for them on a desire to help anyone that I could help to become successful enough to do what they need to do particularly to generate income, which at the same time means be successful as a design person. Mm -hmm. Because if they did not have a level of design to compete at a professional level, they would not be able to maintain incomes. Goes hand in hand. Mm -hmm. I think they go together. I'm thinking, going back to your brothers, you you had two brothers, one one brother, and you're in. The, he's older. How much older? He was eight years old. Oh, that's substantial. So when you guys went to Texas during mm. that family change, um, he's he's like a big brother. I mean, he's like he's considerably older. By high school age, he's almost like an uncle. Right, right. Oh, father. You know, they say that uh, the younger sibling is often, uh, learns so much watching the older sibling. And they, and of course this is not 100%, but often the younger sibling is better at observing than the older sibling. Because the older sibling is this first one, so is the sort of the trailblazer and has to kind of test everything, you know. And the young one watches that and understands, okay, well, that's already been tested, so I don't have to test that. And so they become more of an observer type. And so I'm, I'm, obviously I'm interjecting a lot having heard you talk about your trajectory as a professional, but do you think in what I think is a at least a semi-traumatic 
change in your life, leaving your mom, going to Texas, watching and sort of just sort of adapting to your situation. Is, is that where the empathy comes from? Is that where the observation skills and the able to the ability to uh, assess is is that where a lot of that comes from? I would say yes, it does. Oh. Because each time we moved, particularly when I was grammar school age, I was thrown into a community that I did not know. And I did not have an older brother around that was close enough to have my interest to be protected, save me. So I had to fight my own fights, and I frequently had to. I was. I had to fight the bully in the neighborhood. In which case, I seldom won, but I did learn to run fast. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I carried that talent all the way through life, I think. Just created things of beauty that satisfied themselves, either landscape or still life or some pictures of beautiful models of women, whoever. And they did not do that to make someone else happy. They just did that kind of work as for self-gratification, which I think quite different from from design, especially industrial design. You, it's absolutely requisite that you keep in mind that whatever you're creating is for someone else other than yourself. And I think the personality of a designer has to have that quality to, to, to create. Near the tail end of my working career, I was a professor in several schools teaching design, and frequently I would have a student give his presentation, he would, they would say, well, I fixed this because I I want it this way and I think it's this way. And I would have to rush to the front and say, hold on, hold on. This is not for you. You can't make it blue because you like blue. You have to make, you have to find a color that everyone would like or a color that competition is using and and choose a color to be competitive. This is not just erase the idea of anything about this project is for your interest, but it's for someone else. I think I'll stop with that. I'm done with that. I don't think you should because it, it it sounds to me like there's an interesting balance you have to strike as a to be successful between purely um, doing what you think the customer needs 
and providing a perspective that is unique enough that it can stand out of the rest of the options they have to choose from. Yeah. Not only stand out, but be appealing. Yeah. Caves are where the modern Viewmaster was invented. It was developed as a geological um, imaging device, would you say? Oh. It was a scientific tool before it became a toy. Oh, interesting. It was not a toy, it was a device that adults used for entertainment. They would invite from when they had visitors or family at visit, and they would sit and view the Viewmaster. No television in those days, so this was a, this was intended to be a serious uh, entertainment tool. lifeline of the Viewmaster. It originally was made out of materials that made it very costly. So adults would not allow children to use it often. I mean, it was, they would not allow them to use it as a toy because it was expensive. It was made of bakelite material, which is dark brown, very hard, heavy. And it was a very slow molding process, compression molding, they called it. And uh, because it was so slow, they did not produce a lot of them. So the, the office that I worked in was given the charge to to redesign that product so that it would be easier to produce, uh, to be able to be produced at a lower cost so that they could increase the volume and get more sales. And at that point, was it, were, were you, was everyone thinking uh, for it to become something that kids would use, or was it still They didn't really adults? care. They just oh. wanted to make it get more sales out of it. I see. It just was a byproduct of being able to produce it for less. And because it was less expensive, parents would allow children to play with it or have it. Ah. That and Jody Foster and uh, Charlton Heston, was it, doing that commercial? Might have been. <laughs> really? You can find it on YouTube. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to link to that then. Yeah. Really? It's a, like... It must have been like a 19, I want to say 62 or 61 commercial. It's really, it's way back. Julie Foster's like a little girl in it. So. Star power. <laughs> in fact, I was probably working, that says, 
when I completed the work for the masters. Oh, okay. You were working. Uh, I see. I see. As you were doing freelance work at that point, right? Because you were still you were at, already at Fidel's before you after you before you oh no, after you finished your degree, weren't you? Yes, it was after. I agree. Yeah. Wow. So probably about. I, I would guess that you were finished with your master's degree in about fifty-six. You know, I don't really remember off the top. But if it's important enough, if they told me they were going to redraft me in the military, I'd find a number <laughs> if it was necessary. Well, no, it's it's not know, it's not necessary. We can get that. It's probably on Wikipedia somewhere. <laughs> um, where do we start? I mean, when I think about paging through that book, I mean, there were so many things that, um, like everything from refrigerators to stoves to, I think I saw an iron in there. Mm -hmm. But then all of a sudden there was like garbage cans. And how did that happen? That's not Sears, is it? Yes, it, it is. is. Um, can you tell us the story of that? Okay, the that, garbage. That object that we all take for granted today. When I became a staff designer at Sears Roba, each member of the staff was assigned to a product category to design for. And it happened that I had been assigned the responsibility for design of garbage cans or people who designed for the buyer who, who was the buyer of garbage cans. So to clean it up, they call them refuse containers. But they were really garbage cans. Those old galvanized devils that just rusted and made lots of noise and would get squashed. If you run over the lid of them with your automobile, it would go flat. It was no longer serviceable. And uh, at that time, during those times at Sears, we frequently worked as teams with other disciplines, technical disciplines. And I had been assigned to, assigned to work with two other engineers on the development of garbage cans for this man, for this one buyer's product line. And so one day the uh, see there were chemical engineers and mechanical engineers and structural engineers and so they would make teams out of those people and frequently throw a designer in there just for balance. <laughs> so ah. <laughs> uh, so one day, 
I'm on my way to lunch with a couple of these, with one of these engineers, and he said, Chuck, he said, do you know what? He said, if it was, this was a chemical engineer who was a plastics expert, he said, if we could make a garbage can out of polyethylene or polypropylene material and blow mold it, he said, it would be virtually indestructible. Mm. So I said, great idea, let's try to do that. He said, we don't have the authority to do that for this corporation. He said, we need to convince the buyer to try to, to try this. And then they will all rally behind this concept and do it. And so we were fairly friendly with this one guy who was the buyer of this product line who had control of the money. Uh. And we're back there again. Listen, to try this. And at that, also during that period, Sears was trying to pretend that they were open to product development of new product. So it would be a feather in the cap of this person if they would also design them develop a new product. So this one guy took the hook and we set the hook and reeled him in. And he said, okay, let's go. He said, I'll make a request of you guys in this lab. See, we all, these technical people were all in the department called a product development testing laboratory. So for we for Sears. To, so yeah, so we set out to design a new product and this case was this plastic garbage can made from the bow molding process. So the first man out of the box was the designer. Which was me in this particular case, mm-hmm. and so I I developed this I this this concept this design, and uh, then we had to convince some manufacturer of the value of the value of making this new product. Because then the buyer went through some numbers as well. If I can sell so many more of these at a certain price, it would produce this much increase in sales in dollars. And he said, let's go. Uh, we found this, this manufacturer who had blow molding capability, who's actually a part of a company, railroad company, was Gatex. 
and they made railroad cars and products for the railroad. They also owned a plastics plant in Michigan City, Indiana, which was close enough to Chicago for us to get to in a one-day visit. We could drive over there in the morning and then work with them during the day and then get back home at a normal day's work to quitting time. So Gatex decided to take the gamble and go ahead and develop the can with us. Who convinced them? The buyer did. The buyer wanted it, and they didn't want to lose the buyer's business. They didn't want the buyer to go to someone else with the with this idea. But but you convinced the buyer. Correct. No. No. I did not personally. Yeah, we did <laughs> convince the buyer. We <laughs> did convince the buyer. Yeah. And that's not normal standard procedure. No. Correct. <laughs> Usually. These buyers are so pompous and oh. they don't want anybody telling them they, they're omnipotent. They know everything, especially when it comes to merchandising and their product line. They think that they're the god of that product. They know more about that than anybody in the world. And they will make a decision themselves without the help of any one else. Did you ever see the movie Inception? I don't remember seeing it. Well, there's a movie called Inception, and it's a it's about dreams dream states, and uh, the the crux of the movie is that the protagonist is an expert at it, and so he needs to plant an idea mm -hmm. in this character, so it sounds like the character came up with that idea. Is, is that kind of what you did yeah, there? Yeah, I did. Because <laughs> they had become, he had become convinced that we were trustworthy people uh, and knowledgeable about what we were doing, perhaps. That's where he got much of his knowledge. Did um, he take credit for it? He did, yes. Yeah. <laughs> He got the bonus for it too. Probably. He got the bonus. Also, I guess that's how that works. So now we have better trash cans because of that. Yeah. Well. Well. Not all plastic cans work. Some people produce plastic cans with other processes other oh. materials oh. that would crack and break if you dropped them and oh. squashed them, treated them rough. Is that because they're cheaper to make? Is that why people do that? Maybe. Yeah, they thought they could make a cheaper can that way. Hmm. And then... Um, I don't know what it's like now, but when I was growing up in the in the 70s, Sears, the uh, appliances from Sears were like the best. Like if you, mm. you, there was a feeling that if you bought an appliance from Sears that it would last for forever, you know. 
I don't know if that, but they would guarantee it if something happened. That oh, they, maybe they, they, there's that. They no. they would stand behind the life of the brother. So stoves, stoves, um, refrigerators, major appliances. Um, probably had an iron from Sears. Uh, what else? Toaster. You definitely. So a lot of these items, you, you designed them? Yes, some, many of them. Toasters, wow. I did toasters. a lot of toasters, a lot of, some irons. I even designed some television sets. In fact, right. In fact, right. Right. I designed the first television sets imported to the U.S. from Japan. Oh. Toshiba was the producer of it. I designed it. Oh. How did that happen? Boy, wheeling and dealing, those guys did every kind of thing. They were trying to get a good product at a lower cost. Mm -hmm. But somebody recognized the quality. The quality. They sent the product into this laboratory department that I worked in, okay. where the design department was, for evaluation in the Engineers evaluated it as having very high quality. So it didn't take a lot for the buyer to recognize if he could get the product at at a price of less than he would have to pay another place for another product that did not have the quality that he was getting a good deal. The fact that it was coming from Japan and not the United States, for instance, did you have to change your design uh, aesthetic or methodology or no? That's why they put me in the mix. Yeah. <laughs> put the aesthetic appeal that would appeal to the American market. I see. But I'm just thinking, was there anything about it that looked like it was from Japan or no? No. No. Oh, not unless you took it apart. Right, not after you right. Okay. Okay. Frequently, they would have two levels of quality. They would have the... I'm speaking now when I say two levels of quality. I mean in, in the guts of the refrigerator. Oh. Not the package, the cosmetics with the flash and the sex appeal. If a refrigerator could have that. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, but <laughs> they uh, the, those products would be designed by a, usually one designer, but I did not have that product line assigned to me, although I had co-workers and friends who worked on those product lines. And in the latter days of Sears, 
existence. They would push back some of that design responsibility and engineering responsibility back to something that they called the sources, which were actually the manufacturer, hmm. and have them do design work or the engineering work. And uh, as designers from, from Sears, we would oversee the design or coordination of that design work. And uh, what I can tell you was it's I have no real cute stories except that uh, I know that uh, some of the other suppliers, we'd have two or three different companies or manufacturers who made product in the refrigeration area. Some of it was done by Whirlpool, some done by what the company called White Consolidated, which later reverted back to its original name as, as Frigidaire. Oh, Frigidaire. Frigidaire made some serious product. They were out of Ohio, somewhere near Cleveland. I remember going there. And frequently, those companies preferred to have their design staff from the company to do the design and have Sears designers to get involved because we might push them to might push them out of their comfort zone because what they would do everything that they could possibly do to to keep all of that uh, activity in the in their corporate control. Was, was that a cost thing or was that a an ego thing? That was what you want. It was a cost thing from Sears' standpoint to, yeah. to not maintain. Mm -hmm. The responsibility for the design. Okay. To have them do it. And to have the company provides all the facets of the product development and put it in the cost of the product. Did that work? Must have for a long time. Hmm. There are trade-offs. <laughs> yeah, there are trade-offs, right? Yeah. You know, if you think about what has happened um, from one standpoint, there was a short term cost savings. Right. From another standpoint, there was a long term kind of 
dissolution of the brand difference? Is that a, is that a good way of saying it? I think I, I agree. That's what made them stand out. Refrigerators, right? <laughs> refrigerators, absolutely, yeah. Sears was refrigerators. It's just not a bin. That it was a cold been. spot for a long time, and then it became Kenmore mm -hmm. brand. Right. Depending on how they structured the marketing of it in the, within the corporation. You know, they... they you, you hear, and I hear this more recently because of our political uh, situation, um, uh, how America is an experiment in democracy, you know. And, um, mm. but um, if we're a democracy, we're, we're a capitalist democracy or a democratic capitalist. <laughs> I don't know how that works, but... Uh, we're definitely not a socialist uh, nation. And so these experiments and management and how to make profit and uh, who the customer is and, and the, the ethics behind the product. I mean, these are a part of the experiment, right? Mm. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Do, do we teach that in school? No. No. They learn that after school when they get into corporate America. Yeah. Shouldn't we be teaching that in school? I think so. Yeah. It would be a different playing field if, if that were taken into account early on. No? What do you guys think? I agree. I would say absolutely. Um, there was an article I was, or maybe been something I was listening to a podcast or something that was talking about how most users of Facebook fail to realize what Facebook is actually doing. Oh. <laughs> right. Right. Um, that it's it's a media company. Right. Right, it's an it's an advertising platform now, and so, what does an advertising platform do? <laughs> it's collecting information in order for, yeah, marketing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there any way to take advantage of that construct somehow? Yeah, <laughs> there are lots of ways. <laughs> I mean, not to make money necessarily, but just to change the, the principles of the playing field. Well, I think if you look around at, very, at many spaces, you'll see people who are leveraging those platforms to be able to do things that the platform aren't intended to, intended to do. Right. Um, Good and bad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Because... In some ways, these platforms are agnostic, right? In some ways. Yeah. But although, for many, capitalism is not is, is a religion. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's that's reality.
That concludes another episode of Visitings. Thank you to Chuck Harrison and Jeffrey Trimmings for taking the time to speak with us. A warm thank you to Vita Brown at the California African American Museum. During this show, we allude to a commercial about the Viewmaster. The commercial is from a very young, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the commercial has a very young Jodie Foster in it, but it's not Charlton Heston, uh, but rather the actor Henry Fonda that's in the uh, uh, clip, clip, the ad, uh, the commercial. And that commercial is available on YouTube, so check it out. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, you can find more episodes of Visiting's radio show uh, at SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, dublab.com, uh, and our website, visitings.net. If you visit us on SoundCloud or iTunes, please leave a comment so more people can learn about us. I really would appreciate that. Thanks as always to the Echo Park Film Center and Dub Lab for their support. I'm Alan Nakagawa sitting in my living room in Koreatown saying thank you for listening to Visitings. Thank you.